This program is brought to you by Bible Way Media, a work of the Ulaga Church of Christ. And so we'll begin uh, looking at some different things this morning, as whether it's Chris Redforce or this morning our text, 1 Kings 19, which we'll actually come back to a little bit later. But uh, this morning I'm going to show how the struggles of even strong Bible characters can help us today. There is no doubt that difficult times comes to every single person. And when we say difficult times, I mean you can, you can look at that and however you perceive it. For some of us, it may be trying to find and to secure employment. It may be trying to find a way to overcome uh, health concerns. It may be trying to find a way to, to ensure good and solid education for our children. And the list really just goes on and on from there. And those are all difficult times. I think about those things that keep us sometimes awake at night, things that are always not are always there on our mind, not too far from it. And if you think about time and time again. But we also have to think about how we must respond. And when we think when I say that, I think about those examples we find who are navigating dark times in the Bible. There are numerous examples, and we could look at various examples today. We could spend the entire time just looking at examples of those who are navigating dark and difficult times. And one that comes to mind is Moses. The first one I'll think of is Moses back in Numbers chapter 11. If you're familiar with this chapter, you know that up until this point, Moses was really the go-to physical person. It was him, it was Joshua was there as well, it would be there later. But Moses was the one who was, until this point it would seem, who everyone came and talked to, and then Moses many times would go talk to God as well. But you notice in Numbers chapter 11, notice the words of Moses here in verse 10, keeping in mind who we're talking about. This isn't just some meager little servant he's talking about. We're talking about Moses, one of the most significant men of the Old Testament. Moses, who would be on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments from God. Moses. Not some common little man who had a small, insignificant, seemingly unimportant task. We're talking about Moses, a chosen man of God. Beginning in Moses, or excuse me, beginning in Moses, beginning in Numbers chapter 11 and verse 10, the Bible says, And Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families. Everyone at the door of his tent. Now that would sound like everyone is doing what? They're just complaining. He refers to it here, the Bible says, as weeping throughout their families. Everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord was greatly aroused. Moses also was displeased. I think that's greatly understated as we continue reading. He says here in verse 11, So Moses said to the Lord, Notice how he talks about this. He doesn't say... Talk about the people here being afflicted. He talks about himself. He says in verse 11, Why have you afflicted your servants? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you have laid the burden of all these people on me? Moses was saying, Why are you doing this to me? He's saying here, I am your servant. He says, Have I not found favor in your sight? There in verse 11, why are you laying all the burden of all these people, he says, on me? Now, we understand it would seem to be all upon him, but we know and understand God was there, right? 
But Moses was the one, you might say, on the ground among the people. Not, of course, discounting God at all. But Moses says here, he feels as if the whole burden is laid upon him there in verse 11. And in verse 12 he says, Did I conceive all these people? He says, Did I beget them? That they should say to me, Carry them in your bosom as a garden carries a nursing child. The lamb which you swore to their fathers. He's saying, These aren't my people. He's saying, They're not my physical children. They don't actually physically belong to him. They're not his sons and daughters in a physical sense. And he's saying, Why do I have to carry them to the land which you swore to their fathers? Moses is complaining. Not unlike something we do sometimes today. Verse 13 says, Where am I to get meat to give to all these people? As if Moses had to go out in the wilderness and start looking for deer or looking for animals to kill and to hunt, right? To feed all these people. That's kind of what the idea we get from Moses here. He's saying, Where am I going to get all the meat? To feed all these people. For they weep over all over me, saying, Give us meat that we may eat. He says, I am not able to bear all these people alone. Because the burden, he says here in verse 14, he says, What is too heavy for me? He's saying, I can't do this. There's too many of them. I can't bear, bear, as he says here back in verse 12, the burden of all these people, or verse 11 rather, all these people, the burden of them is on him. Verse 14 he says, I'm not able to bear all these people alone because the burden is too heavy for me. Now notice his reaction to all this. He says in verse 15, if you treat me like this, please kill me here and now. And I'll admit that's kind of funny for him to say that, just kill me now. But the idea is that it's so bad that I don't want any part of it. That's what Moses is saying. This is how it's going to be. I tap out. I don't want any part of it. That's what he's saying. He says, If I found favor in your sight, and do not let me see my wretchedness. Don't let me see what? My demise. Don't let me come to an end because I'm bearing the load of all these people. Now, if we know one thing about Israel, is that they are very good at complaining. They are very good about whining. They have a very short-term memory. But if we're honest, and we know the day the church is spiritual Israel, if we're honest, sometimes we sound just like them. And I put myself in that category. That we can sound just like them. We have a short memory of all the things that God has done for us. Moses, being a servant of God, he says here in verses 10 through 15, this is how it's going to be. I don't want any part of it. This is too much. I can't bear all these people alone. The stress of, of the job placed upon Moses drove him to want out. He wanted out. If this is how it's going to be in verse 15, just kill me here and now. I want out of it. That's how bad it, was, it had become. Now we're going to come back to Moses, but let's look at someone else. Job, as we know, had a tremendous undertaking, tremendous trials that came upon him. I say trials because I think if you look at his life, there's a lot of stuff that came upon him. Now think about this for a moment. Many of us have at some point in our life probably have lost a job for one reason or another. Maybe we left it or we were asked to leave, whatever it may be. Or maybe we have lost our home to a storm or something like that. We lost a loved one. 
But how many of us can look at Job's life and say, I've been there when a man had lost all ten of his children at the same time? Lost their homes, lost his source of income. The Bible says that the raiders came in there in chapter 1 and basically took everything. So he lost his children, he lost his income, and so it would see, or so it would seem. And all this in chapter 1 happened right after another. Right? We find the common phrase here in chapter 1 is, while one servant was speaking, here came another one, which tells us how fast it was coming. Now keep in mind in Job chapter 1 and chapter 2, that we have a different perspective from Job than Job had. Because we get to hear God talk about Job being this tremendous servant. Keep in mind, Job didn't hear that. Job didn't hear God's words to Satan. If you can hear my servant Job, there's none like him on the earth. Job didn't hear that. He didn't hear in chapter 1. He didn't hear in chapter 2. And so what we find, we find here in Job chapter 1, he loses all these things so quickly. It's enough to lose a child, but to lose all of them? It's enough to lose part of your income, or to lose some of your income, or even all of it. But have that placed on top of losing all your children? Job had bad times, difficult times come upon him fast and hard in chapters 1 and chapter 2. Because we know in chapter 1 he lost his children, he lost perceivably his income, and in chapter 2 his health takes a nosedive, no thanks to Satan. And we think about how quickly those things came upon him. Which is why we find the words of Job that we find in chapter 3, as we'll look at here in just a moment. Job, the pain he endured... The things that came upon him came upon him so quickly. We find in chapter 3, he says these words, Why did I not die at birth? Why did I not perish when I came from the womb? He's saying it would have been better if I'd just never been alive. This is how bad it's going to be. I'm not totally convinced that Job is actually saying, God, just kill me. I think he's really saying that this is how bad it's going to be. It would have been better off if I'd never been born. Because that gives us a glimpse of how bad it was. Now we know that Job would later actually be very ashamed of not only his words, but I think also his attitudes. We find later in Job chapter 42 and verse 6, when he is re- replying to God, finally there in verse 40, chapter 42, he says, Therefore I abhor myself. Uh, there, there being, the idea there being that he was disgusted with how he had been acting. I think that includes chapter 3 and verse 11 that he was disgusted that he ever said such things, that he ever acted in such ways. But Job's pain drove him to say things, you might say, that were not in his usual usual character, right? This is the same man in chapter 1 and 2 that God said there's none like him on the earth. In chapter 3 he's saying, this is how it's going to be, I wish I was never born. Why? Because he perceivably had lost just about everything. And done so, it seemed like one after another. I can't think of anyone who's lost ten children all at one time. Now, we've had those who've lost loved ones in an accident. Maybe we've lost multiple people at a time. I'm not saying there are those who have gone through significant pain. We have to look at Job's example and learn from it, the good and from the bad. Another one we'll think about is Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19. 
which we're going to begin first by looking at. We're going to come back and look at more of this text later. But I want you to notice this question the Lord asked to, to Elijah. Keep in mind that in chapter 19 is after the event on, on the top of Mount Carmel where there is this great challenge and, and basically God just proved everyone that He is the one and true only God. That amazing event took place. That's why we find in chapter 19 that Ahab, the little squeeter that he was, runs to Jezebel like a little coward and says, Did you hear what Elijah did? And he tells everybody how he killed all these wicked, evil people. You think about that. He just told his Jezebel that, hey, Elijah just killed all these priests and all these people because, you know, the whole event where God proved himself to be the one true God, all that Ahab took away from that was, look what Elijah did. And so in chapter 19 of 1 Kings, we find that Elijah is running for his life. In verse 9, the Bible says here, this is as he's running, we find in the course of this, he leaves his servant in one location, and he keeps going, he goes in the wilderness, God feeds him twice, and then he later goes for 40 days after that, and he winds up in this cave in verse 9. Elijah deliberately tried to be alone. He left his servant, he's running through the wilderness, God is there, he gets fed twice, he keeps going, and verse 9, what does the Bible say? And there he went to a cave and spent the night in that place. I can think of better places to spend the night. When I think of somewhere I want to stay, a cave doesn't pop into my head. But that's what Elijah did. Because he is running, scared and afraid. And he's also running, or he's trying to run, by himself. The Bible says, He went to the cave and spent the night there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here? Elijah. He asked him, why are you here? What are you doing? After all the things that Elijah had done for God, he's in this cave and the word of the Lord comes to him asking him, what are you doing here? And we find in verse 10, Elijah replies, and despite his best efforts, he might say he believes that things are spinning out of control as you look at verse 10. So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, word of the Lord, of God, for, the, for the Lord God of hosts, which to me is, I'll read that. I think he's saying, "I've done all I can. And look what's happening." For the children of Israel, forsaking your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, I alone—that's how he's perceiving that—am left, and they seek to take my life. Now, hang on, Elijah. You already dumped off your servant, so you weren't truly alone. Now, his servant was just a servant. And he's saying, I alone am left. To my knowledge, nowhere in history is that ever the case. Never has there been just one person left who is saying for what is right. There have been numerous people who perceived that that was the case. Job felt like God has made him, made him his enemy. And so he felt like God had left him. God had it. But that's how Job felt. That's what Satan, in my mind, wanted Job to feel like, that God has left him. When you're out, God has it. That's why later in chapter 38 and, and afterwards, God tells him and, and, and rebukes him numerous times of various things. The reason why is because God never left. But Satan wanted him to feel that way. And we find here in 1 Kings 19 with Elijah what's happening, saying, I'm alone and left. But keep asking yourself this question. Was that really the case? Was he really all alone? 
No doubt, we at times feel like that no one knows what it's like. That maybe we have been in a position of some type of authority or things have been going so well for us for so long that when we when things start perceivably unraveling, it rattles us. And that's not uncommon. I mean, look at Job. It rattled him, right? It definitely rattled his wife. It's found there in chapter 2. When he tells her, he doesn't call her foolish, but he says she's acting like a foolish woman. There's a difference. He didn't say she was. He says, says she was acting like one. Basically, he's saying, you know better than this. You sound like one of those other women. But we have to think about how we today can navigate these storms that come. Keeping in mind that difficult times come to everyone. If they come to Moses, you think that was a difficult time? All these people begging and, and whining, complaining, and Moses saying, it's so bad, just kill me. I don't want any part of this anymore. And if you're saying, kill me here now, that's basically saying, I don't want any part of this. Moses said that. Job said in chapter 3, I wish I'd never been born. Elijah ran and ran, and he is found in a cave, being asked, what are you doing here? Difficult times comes to everyone. Bad times, difficult times come to strong, dedicated people too. We think sometimes, well, I'm not like those of the Bible, those Bible characters. We're not that different. We may say, well, I'm not the Apostle Paul or I'm not one of these great prophets, but can't we endure just like they did? Notice the words of, of Job here. When he says in Job 2, chapter 2 and verse 10, when he's talking to his wife, he says, Shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? We have to take the good with the bad. I don't believe for a moment that any adversity that Job faced in this instant came from God. The Bible tells us it clearly came from Satan. But because Job could not hear the words of God or the words of Satan, it was designed and carried out in such a way to be perceived. Remember, remember where the fire came from? It came from heaven. That's what his servant said. He could perceive that as coming from God. God, all of a sudden, you might say, wasn't communing with Job as he normally would, because why? Job was going through a test period, so what do you do? You stand back and you see what he does. I say stand back in a figurative sense, not literally. God never left. But the fire rained from heaven. His children died. His income or his cattle and all those things died. All he had left to show for were a few servants and his wife who was stressing, obviously. Just like anyone would, Job was in chapter 3, as we clearly see. We must accept the good and the bad. Now think about Joseph. Remember how he prepared for the seven years of lean and the seven years of plenty? We have to prepare ourselves. I'm not talking about financially, so to speak, but I mean mentally. When things are going good, we have to have in our mind that anything could change tomorrow. And prepare our minds mentally and prepare ourselves spiritually for something that may come in the future. I'm not saying we worry about everything. I'm saying that we have made ourselves strong enough that when that comes knocking on our door, that it doesn't just fall straight down. We must be prepared for it. For the Christian, giving up should never 
be an option. Moses wanted to, as we'll talk about here in a few moments, but God had an answer for Moses. He had an answer for Job. And he had an answer for Elijah. He had an answer for Daniel. He had an answer for Nehemiah. He had an answer for Esther. An answer for Abraham. An answer for Joshua. On and on it goes. When people were in distress, God already had the solution. You might say even before they knew there was a problem. God had the solution. Giving up should never be an option. What if a Christian was to forfeit? Salvation is lost when we forfeit. Repentance is lost when we forfeit. Heaven is lost when we forfeit. And those around us begin to think they too should throw in the towel. When we become unfaithful, it, it, uh, it, it harms those around us. I lost my train of thought there. It harms those around us. It affects those around us. We think about Job. Did it harm those around him? It could have. I think it definitely affected his friends because his three friends and his fourth one who would come later attacked him and accused him relentlessly. We have to realize that a Christian can never forfeit because when we do, we lose what is most important. We lose our salvation. We lose repentance or forgiveness, rather, and we lose heaven. What is gained if a Christian was to forfeit? Temporary pleasures. You underline that word, temporary. Temporary pleasures. What is gained? Sin, which will only result in punishment from God. If those things being the case, is anything really gained? The answer must be no. There is nothing gained by giving up. If Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego there in the book of Daniel have bowed their knee to the golden image, they would have lost all hope. They may have sustained their, their threat of the fiery furnace, which was designed to kill them, but they would have lost their faith, and they would have lost their heaven, or lost heaven, barring repentance. Forfeiting is never an option. Giving up is never an option. We think about some lessons for us. God reminds us that we are not alone. In Psalm 18, verses 2 and 3, the Bible says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer. My God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, so I shall be saved from my enemies. Where is our trust? It's in God. The Lord is my rock and my fortress. Just the other day I was doing some things outside and I was digging around preparing to work on a project and you get too close to the fence post and you dig and you feel clink concrete, right? It didn't move, thankfully. If it moved, I've been very disappointed. But it didn't move. Christ for the Christian and God for the Christian is like that rock. We allow the world to cover up 
the cements, the rock, so we can't see it. We see the trials that kind of wash over it. We see the heartache. We see the worry, the concern. But for the Christian, when we realize that God is always there, when we were reminded that God is always there like Job was, and we start pulling back the worries, the concerns, the fears, and we start hearing the clink of the rock again, and realizing that God is still there, waiting for us to come back to Him in obedient faith. God reminds us time and time again that we are never alone. God says the the faithful will overcome the wicked. Moses received help in Numbers chapter 11, verses 16 and 17. So the Lord said to Moses, Gather to me 70 men men of of the elders of Israel, excuse me, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, bring them to the tabernacle of meeting, they may stand there with you. Then I will come down and talk with you there. I will take the spirit that is upon you and will put the same upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, that you may not bear it yourself alone. God said, What? I have an answer for you, Moses. Don't sit down. He says, You stay standing. I have the answer for you. And for him, it was 70 men. He would, as the Bible tells us there in verse 17, they shall bear the burden of the people. Now notice, not for you, but with you. That you may not bear it yourself alone. For Job, we know that God spoke directly to Job in, number, in Job 38 through, verse, through uh, chapter 42. We find that God speaks to him. Job repents of his actions. We find in chapter, uh, I believe it's chapter 40, where, where Job responds, chapter 41 rather, and he's, the first thing he says when he speaks to God is that I am a vile person. Because why? Because he said things which he ought not. And we find that Job repents. And the Bible tells us, remember how the Bible describes Job's blessings following that trial, following those hardships? The Bible says he is blessed more in the end than he was in the beginning. God took care of Job. Elijah was reminded that there were still faithful servants of God just like him. Remember back in verse verse 10 he says, I'm the only one left. That's why he says I'm in the cave. But in 1 Kings chapter 19 beginning in verse 15, the Lord said to him, Go, return your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Hazel as king over Syria. Also you shall anoint Jehu the son of, of Nimshai as king over Israel. <clears throat> and Elisha, the son of uh, Shabbat, of Abel Molah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. And shall be here escapes the sword of Hazel. Jehu will kill. <clears throat> here escapes the, the, the sword of Jehu. Elisha will kill. And notice this, verse 18. Yet have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, every mouth has not kissed him. Seven thousand people. You still feel alone, Elijah? He was not alone. <clears throat> not relying on God causes us fear and loss of perspective. And when we fail to rely on God, we're going to be afraid and we're going to lose perspective about many, many things. 
God has solutions before we even know we have a problem. God knows how to solve any man's problem. You remember when Daniel prayed? The Bible says the moment he began to pray, then when the angel came and visited him, he said the moment he began to pray, God what? Began to work, right? We cannot be effective Christians if we go into hiding. Elijah, rather, in 1 Kings 19 and verse 9, that's what he tried to do. He tried to go into hiding. He ran to the cave, and God's response is, what are you doing here? I think about it this way. The God was telling Elijah, you have no need to hide. You have no need to hide. Yes, we know in verses 15 through 18, he tells them how they have, he's going to appoint these certain men, they'll kill any wicked person, and this one misses it, the other person will get them. The idea being, God's going to take care of you. And then on top of that, he says in verse 18, there also are 7,000 people who have not bowed their knee to Baal or kissed him. Elijah was not alone. Moses was not alone. Job was not alone. And neither was Daniel, or Abraham, or Jacob, or Joshua, and the list goes on and on. We move in the New Testament, the apostles, they weren't alone. You remember when Christ, when he talked about the Holy Spirit, it will come upon them on Acts, in Acts 2, how the Holy Spirit would come upon them upon high. And he says, I will not leave you orphans. Another common thing we find in the Bible for the faithful is that you're not alone. Even when Christ ascends back to heaven, he says, I will not leave you orphans, meaning what? You will not be alone. For the Christian today, we ask the question, are we alone today? No, we're not. God is still with us. He still gives us the answer to every problem we may ever face. God is the ultimate problem solver. He is the supreme solution giver. I want you to think about these words for just a moment this morning. When upon life's billows you're tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged and thinking all is lost, are you ever burdened with a load of care? Does the cross seem, seem heavy you are called to bear? When you look at others with their lands and gold, think that, the, think that Christ has promised you his wealth untold. So amid a conflict with a great or small, do not be discouraged. God is over all. Count your blessings. Sometimes I think in life, the light doesn't shine, shine through because we don't allow it. When we go through difficult times, I have to remind myself and try to remind others as well, sometimes it'll help that we open the blinds to our homes. We will open up and get into our cars and go for a drive and get outside. We're afraid to go into stores, so be it, but we can still go and see the sunshine, can't we? We can see what God has put in place all around us to encourage us and build us up. The only reason we stay in that mire of worry and fear and dismay is because we have decided to stay there. Elijah, when he goes to the cave, God was not going to allow him to stay there because he was telling him that he was not alone. And we today are not alone either.